Thanks for being with me here on this Wednesday, October the 6th. It's 5.36 right now. Today, the Office of the B.C. Senior Advocate released the results of a province-wide review of COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living sites during the first year of the pandemic. The report, the dates and captured are March 1st, 2020 through February 28th. 2021. So a full 365 days worth of data. And the report comes along with seven recommendations. So to help break down what the report's all about and why some of these recommendations are being made, please to welcome to the show BC Senior Advocate Isabel McKenzie. Isabel, how are you here today? I'm well, thank you. Well, thanks so much for taking some time. Always appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I guess the first thing that uh, I want to get into is recommendation number one. I mean, especially right now, this is very topical because the province is undergoing a review of paid sick leave and trying to come up with a permanent program that it wants to implement starting in January of 2022. What are you looking at when it comes to paid sick leave in long-term care and assisted living? Obviously, you're recommending that we need to see increased paid sick leave for all staff right now. Yes, what what we're able to um, quantify is that the majority of the outbreaks were triggered by a staff member with the virus. Uh, some of those would have been asymptomatic. Some people would have had very, very mild illness. They wouldn't have dreamed that they had COVID, uh, but they came to work and, and that triggered the outbreak. And the reasons for that, one of them, but not the only reason, was that uh, a large number of our staff received no paid sick leave. 40% of the staff are casual. Of the staff that do receive uh, paid sick leave, there was great variation. And so we looked at uh, the sites uh, and found that those sites with lower rates of paid sick leave were much more likely to have a larger outbreak. So we're able to see that there is a link between this. And we, when you look at uh, health authority owned and operated sites, they have a standard of 18 paid sick days a year and about uh, 40%, uh, I think it's 44% of the not-for-profit sites provide that level, but uh, only 7% of the for-profit sites provide that level. So when we look at, okay, what about something other than 18 days, we found that uh, 51% of the for-profits and 22% of the not-for-profits provided six or fewer paid day, uh, sick days a year. Yeah, so when we're looking at the numbers right now in terms of what would be an appropriate allotment of time for sick days, I mean, right now the province, as it goes through its review of what the program it wants to have is three, five, or ten um, and, and the range that you have in your report is anywhere from two and a half days of paid sick leave to 18. Is there like a, a figure that makes sense uh, at this point in time? Like, is there a, a minimum, a standard minimum, I guess, that should be uh, encaptured here? Well, we can look at some other data to determine what that might be. It definitely has to be more than five days. Uh, we, we distinctly saw significantly uh, more larger outbreaks with, with those few days. Uh, Ten days may be sufficient. Um, it may be that for a healthcare setting you need a few more because, first of all, um, if you work in healthcare, you're more likely to contract an illness because you're, you're around it all the time. Um, so you do tend to see higher utilization uh, in terms of sick days per year. But I do think that we should set a standard number of paid sick days, and every site needs to provide those. And um, it, it, 10 may be sufficient, it may not. 
Now, when we're talking about people actually being willing to use their sick days, I think there's a couple of issues at play that come with that. Uh, one being, of course, that people need to get paid. So if they don't have paid time off, they're more likely to come to work when sick. That's the issue we just discussed. The other one, though, and I think this applies to a lot of people out there, is not so much that they, they don't want to take the day off, is that they feel bad taking the day off because their duties are then going to fall on somebody else. And I think that is part of the point that comes with recommendation number two, and that's increasing the pool of direct care staff so that there's more people available to take on the burden if someone does have to take some time off. You're absolutely right that, in fact, the number one reason why staff went to work when they weren't feeling well was a duty and obligation to co-workers followed by residents. Uh, not being paid was much further down the list. So paid sick leave is, is crucial. However, um, it isn't going to do any good if a person has paid sick leave but won't uh, stay home because they're worried about the burden on co-workers and residents. So we need to continue to grow that pool of care aid workers. We've, there are several initiatives that have been launched since the pandemic began to um, recruit more people as care aids, to train more people as care aids. We need to keep that work going. And we also need to increase the number of registered nurses because we certainly saw that sites with lower levels of registered nursing were more likely to experience larger outbreaks. And so uh, nursing is a, a four-year time horizon for training, and we're going to have to look at how we're going to uh, increase the number of seats uh, for nurses, not just for long-term care. There's a shortage of nurses everywhere. So it, it will be difficult to achieve that particular goal overnight, but I do think we need to, to uh, set it as a goal and measure our progress toward it. The fifth recommendation in the report, increase testing scope, timelines, and frequency. When, when we're talking about testing, I assume we're talking about COVID-19 testing to see if people are, are showing up to work sick or, or, you know, maybe they're asymptomatic. Like, is that what we're talking about here? Uh, that is correct. That we looked at uh, the testing strategies that were used for various outbreaks, what percentage of outbreaks tested residents and staff within the first 24 hours, 48 hours, et cetera, and, and lots of permutations there. But at the end of the day, it was pretty clear that uh, those sites that tested more people earlier and more frequently were less likely to, to experience a larger outbreak. The testing strategy for the most part was based on symptoms and contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And I think we, that was not sufficient. Um, there was a lot of asymptomatic transmission. Uh, I think we've, com we've underestimated the degree of asymptomatic transmission, so testing only if you have symptoms is insufficient. Um, the contact tracing, um, that was time-consuming. It wasn't necessarily always done quickly, um, and it was imprecise. And so I, I, I think that the approach of test everybody, uh, test them frequently, uh, what's the risk of over-testing, um, particularly in an outbreak site? Uh, we concluded that there was the risk of over-testing uh, was minimal compared to the t to the risk of under-testing. We now have these also. We now have these rapid antigen tests. Now they came in uh, late in the game, and really only became practical when we converted them to nasal swabs only. They used to have to be nasal pharyngeal, and we did that in January of 2021. And so we can now test staff and residents every day with the rapid test, which is highly effective at telling you you're infectious. 
and then we can use the PCR test, which is more sensitive, so it will tell you you're infected before um, uh, you're, you're actually infectious to others. And we can use it to complement the rapid testing and I think really uh, get a handle on these outbreaks before they spread. Uh, has the testing strategy improved significantly? I mean, it sounds like it probably has over the last while. You and I, when we've had conversations throughout the pandemic, have talked about the concerns about a lack of, of testing equipment available to be used or the rapid tests not being deployed. Um, you know, they were kind of almost being hoarded, it felt like, at times by the province. But have, have things seen a, a pretty dramatic improvement over the last little while here in, in terms of that testing? Uh, it's not clear because we, while we are experiencing some out, some outbreaks right now, we're not experiencing them like we did in wave two, and so the the basic approach is still fairly conservative uh, around symptoms and contact tracing. Some sites, because these rapid tests are now uh, more available, are choosing themselves to uh, deploy rapid tests. And the big game changer with these rapid tests was the ability to do it as a nasal swab. Um, you know, you report to work, we hand you your swab, we hand you your swab, you swab your swab yourself, uh, you, you put it in the uh, in the solution, and in 15 minutes you're going to know, and you turn in your your negative test when you go off shift. It's that easy. It's that simple now. Mm -hmm. um, when it was an NP swab in the earlier parts, so that's complicated to do for yourself. So, yeah. um, uh, but I but um, I, I'm not uh, certain that we have yet to embrace the full. Um, protection that these tests can give us. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one, one more thing I did want to ask you about, and, uh, you know, recommendation number six from this por uh, this uh, report talks about the elimination of shared rooms. Uh, you know, I think I can understand why this would be a recommendation during a pandemic. Does the elimination of shared rooms, does that have any value when we're no longer concerned or at least have less of a concern when it comes to COVID-19 specifically? Uh, you know, it just feels like a very pandemic-related recommendation, but maybe there's more to it that I'm missing. Well, I've been um, advocating for elimination of shared rooms for seven years. <laughs> uh, so uh, irrespective of COVID-19 and frankly, other infectious diseases. So don't forget, there's influenza, there's gastrointestinal illness, there's pneumonia, there's lots of infectious diseases out there that are going to transmit more easily uh, between residents who share a room. Uh, but frankly, there's just the overall uh, humanity of it. Uh, really, mm -hmm. not, many, not many people uh, have a shared room. Only 10% of our rooms are shared, uh, but uh, we really have arrived at a private room, um, and I think that that is what we should be providing for all of our residents. You're right. Um, it uh, if if it was only about COVID. Um, it wouldn't make sense to do because we couldn't do it before hopefully this pandemic is over. Mm -hmm. But there's just a whole lot of things about those shared rooms and I think uh, this is yet one more reason why we need to uh, to, to get out of shared rooms and, and into um, single rooms. Well, you're definitely right about the dignity part. I mean, when I go to bed at night, I think I'd feel a little bit differently if I was sharing my room with somebody else. Uh, why would that change into your older days? So that totally makes yeah. a whole lot of sense to me as well. Isabel, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate you coming on the program, and uh, thank you so much, and we'll, we'll hopefully have a chance to catch up soon. Appreciate this. 
Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Isabel McKenzie, BC's senior advocate, speaking to this report released today. And again, this review examined 365 outbreaks at 210 sites between the periods of March 1st, 2020 to February 28th, 2021. 365 outbreaks over exactly a one-year period. Do the math. That's one outbreak per day that is being averaged here uh, upon this review. 84% of outbreaks occurred at sites in the Lower Mainland. It's going to make sense. There's more population there. It's also where we saw a lot more COVID cases being uh, discovered through the early part of the pandemic. And, of course, we're talking about the first initial year, so that doesn't surprise me as w- at all. 72% of outbreaks were contained to four or fewer cases. That's a good thing, it sounds like to me. 75% of outbreaks had no COVID-19 fatalities with an overall case fatality rate of 30%. So generally speaking, fatalities were kept at bay, but of course, generally speaking, is not good enough when we're talking about this issue. And 87% of outbreaks were experienced in wave two, that being September 2020 to February 21. So there was a significant portion occurring uh, during the, the second wave, which was, of course, a little bit worse than the first. We went through pretty much the entirety of the seven recommendations, so I'll I'll leave it at that. Uh, But increased paid sick leave for all staff, it sounds very much like something that makes sense, especially when we're talking about long-term care and assisted living centers. Increasing the pool of direct care staff to alleviate some of the pressures that are faced by those who are maybe making that decision. Do I go to work when I'm sick? I don't want to, but... I have an obligation to help take care of someone. I have an obligation to make sure that, um, you know, my coworker is not being overworked. And if I'm not there, they're going to get more duties assigned to them. We don't want people feeling that, that, uh, what's the word, like remorse or, or guilt about not showing up to work. That is one of the things that I know is in my past has always kept me from, from calling in sick. It's not so much that I'm working, because especially when I'm working a, a salary job, I'm going to get my, my paycheck at the end of the month regardless. But at the end of the day, I still felt like, man, I, I, I shouldn't go to work because I'm not feeling well, but I also don't want someone else to have to do double the work because I'm not there. So I would show up anyway. That's an attitude we're trying to eliminate You're going to need the staff in order to help make up for that burden if we're going to really drive that message home into people's brains. That's how I feel about that. So recommendation number two, increasing the pool of direct care staff makes a whole lot of sense to me. And the elimination of shared rooms. Again, from the surface, as I was saying to Isabel, it seems like a pretty COVID-19 specific related recommendation. But she's right. It goes far beyond. We're talking about just the transmission of disease, which, of course, is something to worry about. The flu can spread very easily in a shared room environment. However, just the dignity of it. You know, you know, if you're if you are a single person, let's just say. You go to bed at night. Your bed's in the corner. You want to bed in the other corner of someone else there with you? I mean, you might. Maybe it's your best friend and that's cool. You get to have a sleepover once in a while. But every single day... Yeah, you probably don't want that. So from the dignity perspective, yeah, eliminating shared rooms makes sense for sure as well. You can check out the report online. Just go to the seniorsadvocatebc.ca website and you can find it there and uh, read through the entirety seven recommendations. Or you can read our little snapshot story that we have online at RadioNL.com.